You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, we'll learn about the surveillance tools that local law enforcement agencies have at their disposal and what they do. When people are going out into the world, we are now constantly surrounded by surveillance technology, and it has become somewhat invisible to us, even though it's just right there in front of our eyes. There's a history in this country of surveillance technology being used to chill dissent, whether that's you know the FBI going after Martin Luther King or police in the Los Angeles area sending undercover cops into college classrooms to spy on students and professors. This is something that happens in our society, even if it's not legal, even if it feels like it's unconstitutional, it does happen, and it's important to keep an eye on it. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Civic. Yesterday, you heard from a reporter about law enforcement using social media to monitor protesters and how the government's hoping to get easier access to electronic devices. But there are also more visible tools that law enforcement agencies use to gather data. It's likely you've seen most of this technology before or passed by it without noticing. I talked with Dave Moss from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, a nonprofit defending digital privacy, which has published lots of information about recognizing surveillance tech and how it works. You'll also hear from two Stanford students, Craig Nelson and Shelby Perkins, who have been researching which law enforcement agencies in the Bay Area use which technologies and mapping the results. I would like to start by going over some of the known technologies that law enforcement agencies use to collect information about people and ostensibly about crime and how those might be used at protests, which are not crime. To start with, the San Francisco Police Department uses body-worn cameras, and body-worn cameras keep coming up in articles that I've been reading about um, something that's used for surveillance, although you might remember them being implemented as an accountability tool. How are they used for surveillance? And Dave. So body-worn cameras uh, came into effect in the mid-2000s. A lot of it came down from the Obama administration pumping funds into local governments. And the idea was if you had body-worn cameras, it would discourage from police officers from engaging in brutality or other coercive behaviors. It would document these interactions so everyone would behave better. But what we've seen over the years is that this technology isn't necessarily so great at capturing the activities of police as much as it is capturing more information and more evidence evidence on people in the community. And so when you have something like a protest and you have police officers patrolling that protest, providing security, what they're doing at that point is gathering information on people engaged in First Amendment activities. Um, in San Francisco, cops do wear body-worn cameras. But if you look at Seattle, police departments, police officers there have body-worn cameras, but they do turn them off when they are covering a protest. Well, Dave, I'm going to go to you for a couple more of these items. And um, Craig and Shelby, just hang in there. We will get to your project. But I want to give people an overview of what is actually out there. And another technology that I'm interested in is automated license plate readers, because they sound fairly self-explanatory by name. But again, what does that have to do with a protest? Why would these be used to read the license plates of people or cars, rather, around a protest? Well, so we're seeing car protests as a form right. of dissent emerging around the country. Um, and that's largely because of COVID-19. People can't, you know, people are afraid of of gathering in, in public or being in close quarters with other people. So maybe they start to stay in their car or they arrange a protest. 
um, in their vehicles. And this has been controversial in some parts of California. For example, you look in San Diego County, there have been uh, car protests outside of detention facilities for immigrants with people protesting the lack of COVID-related care to those detainees. But automated license plate readers are these devices that collect images of people's license plates along with where they were seen and when. And then that's uploaded to a gigantic database that cops can search to get an idea of where you were, where you've been, where do you go on a regular basis. And so that can be really invasive. We have seen police departments use automated license plate readers to gather information on people visiting mosques or people visiting gay clubs that has been abused. And so we're definitely concerned if law enforcement is gathering information on people who are engaged in car protests but uh, you know, aren't engaged in any other criminal activity because that is police gathering information on people exercising their rights. Mm-hmm. And here's the one that I'm really curious about. How do law enforcement agencies use social media? So this has changed quite a bit over the last few years. It used to be that law enforcement agencies used tools like Geofedia, which had access to what's called the fire hose of of data with Twitter and Facebook. And they would provide services to law enforcement where law enforcement could search for certain terms or spy on certain people to try to determine where protests might occur, particularly around things like Black Lives Matter or Occupy or things like that. That came to light when the ACLU of Northern California uh, did some public records requests and revealed that this is something that was happening. And as a result, Twitter and Facebook cut off access to Geofedia and I think a few other similar services. But there are still companies out there that are providing social media surveillance. Sometimes that might just be used to you know, see what reporters are writing about a particular issue. The more nefarious use is when they're collecting information on people based on their op- opinions, positions, perspectives, in order to build out a portrait of the community, which really isn't, isn't you know, crucial to policing. So, Craig and Shelby, you've been working on a a little bit of a study, let's say, that shows which law enforcement agencies in the Bay Area have which of these technologies. There's a longer list, and we didn't get to each of them um, that are in use. Can you talk first a little bit about why you started going down this path? Why did you want to know which technology is available to which law enforcement agencies in the Bay Area? So Craig and I were actually in a class this past quarter um, entitled Online Open Source Investigation with Dr. Shelby Grossman, and we had the opportunity to pick a project to work on throughout the quarter, and luckily enough, um, we were paired with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and that's how we started working with Dave. We were both kind of interested in the surveillance technology um, for some different reasons. I've been finding myself just increasingly interested in it since coming to Stanford, And it was a really interesting project to look at and to start investigating. And Craig? Overall, it's possible to examine specific law enforcement agencies for their surveillance capabilities. But to to our knowledge, there wasn't a a place that captured all of those capabilities in in one usable document. So that's what what we worked with Dave to produce. Mm Mm-hmm. So you've put together this map, you've put together a report. Generally speaking, is what we've been talking about earlier in this interview prevalent in the Bay Area? Uh, yes, it is. It, it is prevalent. We, uh, so overall, we, we looked at the uh, surveillance capabilities of law enforcement agencies across five Bay Area counties from the county level to the municipal level. And, and we, did, we, we found uh, multiple instances of, of the technologies that you've mentioned and, as well as others. 
So when we talk about law enforcement and surveillance, a lot of people's minds jump to police. But there are other law enforcement agencies besides the police. What about sheriff's departments? What other uh, law enforcement agencies did you actually look at and who had a lot of surveillance technology? Great question, Laura. So we looked at sheriffs, police departments, uh, district attorneys, um, somewhat, transit police departments, and university police departments. And so on average, the county sheriffs use the most surveillance technology with um, out of the seven technologies we look at, they use 3.6. And that's a, a bit higher than police departments. And did that surprise you? I mean, it seems to me that sheriff's departments generally are responsible for things like jails, right? I mean, what are what are the situations in which sheriff's departments are using all this surveillance technology? That that's a good question. That's that's certainly outside of of what I research. So I I, I have to tell you, I don't I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I I wasn't even sure what to expect when we when we started this, but. Uh, Shelby's absolutely right when she when she says that the capabilities seem to be more robust at the county level. Mm-hmm. So in October of 2018, this law was passed, SB 978. Jerry Brown signed it into law, and it said that by the beginning of this year, 2020, California's local law enforcement agencies would need to post their standards, policies, procedures, and training materials online. And previously, you could only get these through the California Public Records Act. So what what does that mean? How accessible was this information prior to SB 978? Um, I'll go ahead and grab that one because I think I'm the only one who is here maybe <laughs> looking at these <laughs> issues. Um, so EFF uh, endorsed uh, Senator Bradford's SB 978 several years ago when, when this was proposed. But we had had to... So in order to understand how law enforcement was using surveillance technology, we would have to go through a fairly onerous process, agency by agency, filing these requests to get just their policy manuals, training materials, pretty basic stuff that should be available to anyone. And it wasn't just us. You'd have other organizations like Oakland Privacy or the ACLU. And so everyone was having to do it over and over and over again. And then Senator Bradford suggests, well, maybe we can save everyone on both sides, both law enforcement and the public, time and energy if we just made it proactive, that you had to publish these online on your website, both individual departments, but also also the California Commission on Peace Officers uh, Standards and Training. And so it was difficult before, uh, with the exception of a few police departments uh, that had started to do this anyway because they realized it was just easier. Now, well, you know, it's somewhat better, um, but it's still not great. Yeah, I mean, my next question was definitely how well implemented has this been? And I understand that, Craig and Shelby, you used this this law uh, quite a bit to try and find out what these policies are across different departments. How many did they actually had, had it posted? Right. So we looked at a total of 67 law enforcement agencies that were, that we thought were municipal agencies. And of those 67, we found that nine didn't have anything posted on their website. Uh, but I have to acknowledge that it's possible that we just missed it. We, we looked, I think we looked extensively, but it is possible that we, that we missed the link somewhere. I would, I would just like to add on that, that the law does say that these have to be conspicuously posted on the website. And <laughs> by my standards, if, if I have two 
Stanford students who are explicitly tasked with looking for these policy online and they can't find them, then maybe it's not conspicuous enough. Yeah. Shelby, did you want to add about anything about your experience trying to find these, these manuals? Yeah. My first few times with them, I was, um, even when you find them, I was pretty confused. And I think Craig can talk to this further, but sometimes it's a thousand pages long and you're going through just trying to word search. And it's pretty difficult to look up facial recognition when there's a lot of references to facial hair. Oh no. Yeah. I, so I, I can, I can talk to that too. The, so as, as in, an uninitiated person just looking for surveillance capabilities on uh, on, on published law enforcement documents. I, I found it was easiest if if that department I was looking at published a, a PDF document with with text that was recognizable to the word search function in my browser. And that was the case with almost everything that we that we found that was published. But there were a few instances where the the publications were were partitioned into separate PDFs with with titles that that weren't intuitive, at least not for me as as one of the uninitiated. So that required multiple and repetitive searches across multiple documents. And then I, I think that at the probably the most user averse that, that we found was was when the instead of text recognizable PDFs, uh, what they actually published were were just scanned images of those words. And that that required complete manual searches. Um, and, and, and that so we, we found that to be the, the least informative. Yeah, and I want to talk a little bit about what that ended up meaning, because you went and compared some of these policies and you looked for what they had to say about surveillance technologies. And I found this interesting. You found that San Francisco and Oakland published their policies, sorry, published their policies in a particularly unfriendly way and both have robust surveillance capacity. There's something in San Francisco called the Committee on Information Technology, and it's required by city ordinance to publish a list of all the surveillance technologies employed by all city departments. And the San Francisco Police Department section has a long list, including something called PenLink, which is a communications company that provides law enforcement agencies with the ability to intercept electronic communications. So what did you find out about this pen link in the SFPD's SB 978 documentation online? That's a that's a great example. We I didn't find anything regarding pen link in the in the SFPD's published policy manual and in general for the city of San Francisco. I found the uh, the, the document that you referred to a second ago from the the Committee on Information Technology that if if you're looking for capabilities employed by agencies within San Francisco, you're, you're going to be a lot wiser after you look at that document than the SFPD's manual in general. When we opened the SFPD's manual, it was you, we had to click through various headings. And if we didn't recognize what that heading referred to, it, that, that link was largely a dead end. So then we had to go to another PDF document and, and just hope that we chose the right one. It's possible that we missed the pen link reference in, in that search because it was largely a manual search. But we, we yeah, we, we didn't find it. Yeah, Shelby, did you want to add anything about the experience of trying to find this one reference to one technology that sounds, you know, a little bit frightening, actually? It looks at electronic communications and not being able to find it? Yeah, I don't know if I can speak to that specific technology, but I will say um, when these these documents were just in a form that was not friendly to users, I mean, we had been searching um, over 50 police departments and law enforcement agencies, and we were really used to it. and if we had been doing this for a couple of weeks already and we're familiar with it and we're still really struggling with it, it makes me, um, I would be quite upset if I was someone who just wanted to find out 
my local law enforcement agencies. And that was the case because it, it really seemed like a losing battle. Yeah. And I noticed a similar finding for gunshot detection. You found out that six police departments in your research area used gunshot detection, but you weren't able to find mention of it in any of the 58 policy manuals that you searched. So first of all, how did you know these departments even have it? Most of our findings that we used outside of the SB 978 documents were from newspaper articles or from social media posts for gunshot detection a lot of them were from local news publications who were writing about a crime um, and said the police or the sheriff figured this out because of the gunshot detection Um, and that is where we found our info from so the local newspapers have more readily available information about which departments have this technology than the mandated policy manuals online yeah, I mean, that's so that's what we found, Laura, but that, that doesn't mean that we didn't miss it somehow in our search. Right. So it, it's it's entirely possible that we missed it, but we looked for we, we looked for the, the brand name of the of the service that typically provides gunshot detection, and then we looked for some other uh, related search terms uh, and, and found nothing. I'm talking today with Dave Moss, Senior Investigative Researcher for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and Shelby Perkins and Craig Nelson, two Stanford students researching surveillance tech in use by law enforcement agencies in the Bay Area. Dave, I'd like to bring you back here real quick and ask you about gunshot detection and what it is and what other names it might have, and why is it considered a surveillance technology? Sure. So so gunshot detection um, is a technology where they install acoustic sensors throughout neighborhoods in a city. And those acoustic sensors are almost like Alexas. They're just listening all the time. But instead of listening for you to say, Alexa, you know, buy me the latest Pearl Jam CD, uh, they're listening for sharp noises. They're listening for gunshots or fireworks or car backfires, things like that. And when it hears, when one of these sensors hears a sound like that, it's actually maybe multiple sensors. Like you might have three sensors that hear it simultaneously. And then because there are three of them, they're able to identify the geographic location. And then that sound goes to a headquarters somewhere where there's analysts listening and saying, oh yeah, that's a gunshot or, oh no, that's a firework. And then it passes that on to the police for them to investigate within a matter of seconds. If you're using one of these apps like Citizen or Rings app Neighbors or something like that, specifically Citizen, you will see lots of false positives of ShotSpotter, which is one of the technologies. You'll see that repeatedly coming up on your alerts of something happening in your neighborhood. Now, the concern for us is that, first of all, these are not necessarily accurate. In fact, in San Francisco, one of the engineers for ShotSpotter had to testify that their claims of accuracy was actually a marketing ploy and not supported by science. Uh, Elsewhere in the country, there have been allegations that ShotSpotter has doctored records in order to suit the police. But ultimately, one of the questions here is how much audio is this recording? We understand that it can pick up voices. And if it is picking up conversations, then that's worthy of concern. But also, if having this technology in certain neighborhoods rather than other neighborhoods, that may result in police going to those neighborhoods more often. Do we know where San Francisco has ShotSpotters installed? Well, if you know what they look like, then yes. So, um, for example, if you go to the Western Edition neighborhood, you're going to see them all over the place. They look like 
oh gosh, how to describe them. They're kind of L-shaped where they've got like one kind of white box at the top and then like a metal pole coming down and then it hooks around to like another box. But they're usually on light poles or traffic lights. Um, there's an older model uh, by a different company that you might see in downtown San Francisco. It kind of looks like, you know, the, the the game of jacks. I don't think kids play jacks anymore. I don't even think I played I jacks think so. when I was a kid. <laughs> but, but, you know, they're kind of like asterisks shaped little toys. You might see these things around downtown, and that's an, an older, older gunshot detection system that San Francisco used to use. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's funny that we're talking about how to recognize stuff. Unfortunately, the me- radio medium doesn't really lend itself to <laughs> lending, uh, uh, making these descriptions really clear to a listener. But the EFF doesn't only have guidelines on what surveillance tech is in use and how to recognize it, but it actually has a virtual reality game set in San Francisco where you can practice spotting these technologies. Dave, can you talk about that a little bit and what it's designed to do? Sure. So Spot the Surveillance uh, is... A, as you explained, it's a virtual reality experience. You put on your headset and it works across different headsets. So if you've got the Oculus, it works. If you've got the Vive, it works. If you've got, you know, other, other systems, it'll work. Um, but it drops you into, again, the Western edition neighborhood. You're actually on Turk and Fillmore, uh, in front of the police station. And there's a police encounter going on and you just look around and you look for things. So you might see an automated license plate reader on a patrol car. You have to look for where the body worn camera is that the police officer is wearing. Uh, now I'm going to just start spoiling all the different um, Easter eggs <laughs> in the experience. Yeah. Don't but, tell us what all is in there. <laughs> but, but you know, there's about six or seven things plus two false positives that are kind of nice little bonuses. But, mm. you know, the idea is, um, you know, is that, when people are going out into the world, we are now constantly surrounded by surveillance technology and it has become somewhat invisible to us, even though it's just right there in front of our eyes. And so hopefully by having um, something like Spot the Surveillance where you can practice in advance, when you're in a, a more high stress situation like a police encounter or like a protest, you have a little bit more training on what to look for. Did that cop have a camera? You know, was there something on that pole? And that can be really important for if there are criminal cases down the road or you need to be a witness, you know, in a case, it, it can be useful. I want to talk a little bit about not just what technology you all found to exist in local law enforcement agencies, but also what they don't have. San Francisco and Oakland don't have facial recognition. San Francisco and Oakland have both banned the use of facial recognition technology by law enforcement. I was under the impression that San Francisco and Oakland's police departments don't have drones, but you know, as we've already talked about, there are other law enforcement agencies besides the police departments. So do do we know that certain departments in the Bay Area have access and use drones to surveil their communities? I, Laura, I can tell you that, that we found mention of drones in, in 19 published policy manuals of the of the 67 that we looked at across the Bay Area. OK, um, I'm also curious about facial recognition because as I understand it, San Francisco and Oakland have banned that from being used. Do you think that bans on certain types of technologies are a major factor in how or what technologies are in use around the Bay Area? We have we have multiple kinds of face recognition bans going on in California right now. So on the statewide level, um, there is a three-year moratorium on the use of face recognition on cameras carried by police officers. So that includes not only body-worn cameras, but these these handheld 
sort of super phones that cops might have to do face recognition during police stops. But you're right. Also in Oakland and San Francisco, there is a flat across the board ban on on face recognition, regardless of whether it's a mobile device or not. Um, And this is a trend we're seeing around the country. And it's a really interesting thing because I do think it's a positive mood forward to remove that kind of biometric identification. But at the same time, I think the companies that are selling face recognition are looking beyond face recognition and saying, well, if we can't recognize people based on their faces, can we recognize them based on the shape of their head or the shape of their body or what t-shirts they wear? And so it's going to be a, even though we might have a ban on face recognition now, it's a constantly moving target for us. Yikes. I also want to talk about one more technology that we haven't gotten to, and that's cell site simulators, which you might have heard referred to as stingrays. And and if you wouldn't mind, Dave, could you briefly explain what a cell site simulator is and why law enforcement agencies have them? So cell site simulators are fake cell phone towers. They're essentially these boxes that a police department can roll out to a location, usually through a van, and use that to track somebody's cell phone, identify all the cell phones in an area. Depending on which model they have and what their policies say, they might even be able to intercept communications using that device. But you know how it works is you have something that pretends to be a cell phone tower, everybody's phones connect to it, and then they get information on those phones. So a variety of agencies in the Bay Area use cell site simulators. Uh, the Vallejo Police Department actually acquired one not too long ago, and the Oakland Oakland Privacy, a local organization, is suing over it because Vallejo uh, skipped the official legal requirements. There's some transparency requirements around acquiring this technology, which they ignored. A lot of people are worried that cell site simulators are going to be used at protests. Uh, they have been used at protests in the past. But we've looked into it and, you know, we're not fully convinced that that's being used right now uh, to track people's phones, particularly because there's a lot of other ways to do it. In Berkeley, for example, during those UC Berkeley protests, instead of using a cell site simulator, UC Berkeley just went to the phone companies and asked to get the phone records of everybody who was uh, uh, around the protests at that day and time. There's been a variety of of organizations that have looked into cell site simulators over the years. Uh, The ACLU did a survey of who had them a while back. But then a a reporter named Kevin Collier did probably the definitive collection of everybody's data to create a data set of who had them and who didn't. And so we've been using that in our research so far. So I wanted to kind of close with this thought actually from an existing article. Popular Mechanics published an article on excuse me, protest surveillance that poses the question that I'm honestly most curious about. They write, quote, the technology is merely the acquisition method, and it's concerning to think about what happens to the data after it's been collected. For example, right now, data collected from license plate readers and other sources is often sold to third parties who then resell that data to insurance providers, banks and credit monitors. What do you know about how the information gathered by these surveillance technologies at protests is used? I would like to to sort of say first that in California, it is not legal for a law enforcement agency to sell license plate reader data to a third party. That's just across the board, like banned. Um, so Good we don't really have much worry for that in California, just because that's how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think, though, that there's a lot of questions about how long they're retaining 
information on any of these technologies. And that is something that we always look for in these policy manuals. If you have a policy manual that describes a technology and it doesn't say when they're going to delete that data, then you have a problem. Doubly, you have a problem when they don't even mention the technology at all in their policy manuals, because then they're collecting data without any controls whatsoever. Do we know what information, what the information that's being collected at protests specifically is used for? I mean, besides for police to kind of monitor the situation and see where a protest is and where it's headed, what's, what's the point of collecting this? So I've got a couple of answers. One is that I will have a much better answer for you in two or three years. <laughs> like <laughs> it really does take a long time for the for the abuses to surface um, because it comes up during court cases. You sometimes have to sue under freedom of information laws to get it. It just could be a really onerous process. And you know, we're always finding out stuff that happened three years ago, five years ago, ten years ago. Um, so I know that's not a totally satisfying answer, but one of the things that I am worried about is that they use surveillance technology to justify more surveillance, to justify more surveillance, and that maybe they never even charge anyone at the end of the day. They're just gathering this information so they have it. There's a history in this country of surveillance technology being used to chill dissent, whether that's you know the FBI going after Martin Luther King or police in the Los Angeles area sending undercover cops into college classrooms to spy on students and professors. This is something that happens in our society, even if it's not legal, even if it feels like it's unconstitutional, it does happen. And it's important to keep an eye on it to make so when it does happen, you can stop it or hold the, the perpetrators accountable. Craig and Shelby, before we end here, I wanted to give you a chance to say anything that I didn't specifically ask you about um, or maybe share any reactions to your findings, your research. Yeah, so I guess what I'd say is I, I wish we had more time. We only did five Bay Area counties. Uh, of course, that's that's not all of them, but the there, there really were only eight usable weeks out of the spring quarter for us. So we, we just ran out of time. I, I wish we could continue this. Yeah, I agree with that. This is a really fun project. I feel like I learned a lot and um, I encourage people to look into what their local law enforcement agencies have if just to learn about their own community. Oh, can I, can I jump in with one more thing? <laughs> yes. I do really, really appreciate uh, Craig and Shelby's help on this project, but I would say that they are two people out of more than 500 who have contributed to EFF's overall Atlas of Surveillance project, where we've been collecting all of these news articles and policy documents and public records and press releases from across the country over at least 12 different technologies. And we hope to, to release that data in the next few weeks and then have a fairly robust site by the end of the summer. So keep an eye out because there is going, this is not just an effort limited to San Francisco. We've been doing it nationwide. Great. Well, thanks to you all for your time. Yeah. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Laura. That was Dave Moss, Senior Investigative Researcher for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. You've also been hearing from Shelby Perkins and Craig Nelson, Stanford students researching surveillance tech in use by law enforcement agencies around the Bay Area. I'm Laura Wenis, and you've been listening to Civic. 